0: Amen, church. Wow, how good it is to hear truths sung over one another and exalted to Jesus. Thank you for being here. Hope you have a copy of God's Word this morning. If you do, open with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12 this morning. And at first glance, I realize this does not seem like a warm and fuzzy, cozy, inviting Sunday before Christmas message. But I want to affirm to you more than ever, the God of the universe has orchestrated events for us to gather today around this text. And he has something he wants to speak into the life of every one of you here today. So let's see what it says. I want to read for us. Verses 1 to 12, this is what God's word says. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the river Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Where therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter, and he said to them, "Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery." We open up in chapter 10 this morning, and these religious leaders known as Pharisees, they thought they had the perfect, most strategic, most opportune question to propose to Jesus so that in asking it, that regardless of what his response may have been, he would trap himself and come to his demise in which these religious leaders had all given their energies toward because Jesus claimed to be God the Son. He claimed to be King of kings. He claimed he was the Lion of Judah who would come to first do the work as the Lamb of God. And all of those realities that he spoke and demonstrated and affirmed threatened their positions of power and influence and titles and status. And so here in chapter 10, they thought they had him. And they asked this question That's all surrounding this very uncomfortable, very heavy topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. In ancient Palestine, this was indeed uh, an extremely polarizing topic. Um, there were two major schools of thought. So it was legit, 50-50 split across the nation of Israel. There were two leading rabbis. There was Rabbi um, Shammai. Rabbi Shammai was over here on my right. He was most conservative. And he would suggest there are allowances, there are releases from your marriage covenant. You, you're okay to get divorced, but only in the limited capacity or limited situations where a spouse has committed some type of immorality. That was one school of thought. But on the other end, Rabbi Hillel ends with L because he was liberal as all get-outs, and you end up going to—I'm kidding, okay? Everybody who professes Jesus goes to heaven, okay? But Rabbi Hillel, he taught this school of thought. Basically, if your wife's lashes weren't full enough— or if she didn't cook your favorite meal just the way your mom always made it for you growing up, you could go to a priest, according to whatever fancy you had, and have a certificate of divorce, and then officially, as documented in that certificate, you could then send her away. Extremely polarizing topic in ancient Palestine. Or as polarizing a topic as divorce and remarriage is, we know it's also extremely penetrating. Sweeping all across the nation of Israel. The nation as described as the apple of God's eye. The nation that, that deserved nothing more special than any other nations, but God in his providence, in his sovereignty, in his favor, in his kindness, looked toward establishing Israel that through this earthly nation... A savior for all humanity might come up through Jesus Christ. And here in this nation, this topic that's so polarizing was penetrating all across the land where there was no family, no individual immune to the devastation and knowing the tentacles of raw dynamics that come and the destruction of Divorce, either directly or indirectly by close friends and family. I stand before you this morning only on this. Because this is not the message I wanted to preach. The Sunday I return from magical Disney World, the Sunday before Christmas Eve service and Christmas Day. But you never want what I want, trust me. We want what the God of this word desires for us, and I recognize before you this morning, church. For as much as we wish this was a topic limited to ancient Palestine, we know too well it's still alive today. We, we know here among us, among the gathered saints on Sunday morning, we know the sting, we know the stigma uh, surrounding this topic. We know how polarizing it is. We know how penetrating it is. Whether you've walked through it personally, or maybe you're no more than one degree away from experiencing it indirectly. What I want to encourage you with this morning, based on the Word of God, He has something to tell you. And catch this I'm not not suggesting God of the universe only has something to tell you if you've been married, or if you've been divorced, or if you've been married, divorced, and remarried. God Almighty has something to tell every follower of Jesus in this place today, so don't miss it. Don't let the stigma or the uh, the sting of this topic distract you what he divinely wants to speak into your life today. And the very first verse of chapter 10 assists us as followers of Jesus. It, it provides a balm for the, the stinging elements of this topic. Notice the context of verse 1. Jesus left there, went to the region of Judea, beyond the river Jordan. Crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. See, a, a topic of divorce was broached. But only in the greater context of Jesus teaching as was his custom. Jesus was teaching about the kingdom. Jesus was teaching about what it looked like to follow Jesus as his disciple. And then, as I know our elementary teachers can relate, he was teaching and then someone raised their hand to the equivalent of, I have a question oh great, I'm engaging, I'm really making an impact on this student's life. Yes, little Timmy, what's your question? Can I get a drink of water? No, we're not talking about drinking water. We've got more important arithmetic and reading going on. We want to teach you right now. That's the equivalent of this question here. One of these Pharisees raised their hand and said, hey, teacher, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And they think they've got set. It, it doesn't say it specifically here, but it, it implies Jesus must have taught on this to some extent up to this point sometime before, maybe in the same region, maybe somewhere else across Israel, and they'd used it, and they'd taken these topics, and these Pharisees really thought it through and thought, okay, here's how we can position it. We can ask a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then the, these Pharisees knew, at least at this point, We know Jesus' Jedi tricks of answering questions. He never answers a question directly. He always answers it with another question. So they say, we've got the perfect question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? At first, it seems like Jesus takes the bait. He answers with a question. Well, what does Moses say? Basically, what Jesus is saying is what we all should ask when we encounter different situations of life. What does the word of God say? Who cares what I say? Who cares what you say or think or feel? We only care how it's grounded and forged in the foundational truth of Scripture, God's word. And the equivalent of God's word at that day was the Old Testament. The law written by Moses. Those first five books of the Old Testament. So Jesus answered the question with a question. What does Moses say? And they said, well, Moses supposes that you could issue a certificate. In issuing the certificate, you could send your wife away. And Jesus replies in verse 5, essentially telling him, Well, your answer, it's, it's not false, it's not completely wrong, but you're not sharing the whole story. So Jesus provides the argument that they're leaving out. He says, Yes, Moses did issue this, certif- this certificate, but it was because of your hardness of hearts that he wrote. This commandment. This is directly from Deuteronomy 24. They answered straight from the word of God. Perhaps they were hoping to catch Jesus in this. Making Jesus claim something from the word of God that, that perhaps that got, got John the Baptist's head severed from his body, remember? John the Baptist came to the point where he was such a truth teller that he told King Herod himself, You are an adulterer. Ended up serving John the Baptist's head on a platter at an evening party. Maybe these Pharisees thought they were going to get Jesus in the same predicament. Well, what does Deuteronomy 24 say? Look at Deuteronomy. Go to the left, all the way to the Old Testament. Chapter 24, verse 1. This is what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Just trust me here. This is the equivalent of if she wakes up and has bad breath. She wakes up and is burning the meal too many times. If there's any reason of not finding favor in her as his wife and there's any type of indecency in her, They're coming up with all these crazy, wild-eyed suggestions of divorcing her and sending her away. That's the certificate that Moses issued. And what Jesus is trying to tell them is twofold. He says, one is this. Yes, Moses did. He says, right, Moses did issue this certificate, but it was because of the hardness of heart. Translation, sin. Sin. God, through Moses, provided this because God recognizes the sinful reality of a fallen world. That things like this would happen as mankind follows their flesh rather than the leading of the Spirit in the relationship with God. Jesus also said, yes, it was a certificate based on the hardness of heart because also as these men, whatever their fancy was that day to send their wives away, these wives would go out on their own and a certificate was actually a provision of mercy for them as well. Because in this this certificate, as they went around, if they were known to be a divorcee, their penalty was to be stoned to death. But if they found with them this certificate, they would not be put to death. And they could remarry, have some type of life. Deuteronomy 24 actually says that divorce was allowed, but it wasn't God's heartbeat. It was a provision of mercy in light of a fallen human race. Divorce was allowed, but it wasn't God's heart. It was Only in response to man's hardness of heart, as Jesus says right here in Mark chapter 10. And let me gracefully, or as graciously as possible, yet truthfully as well, remind you of this. Jesus here, unequivocally, in light of God's holiness, in view of the standard of God's righteousness emphatically says God rejects all divorce. In Mark chapter 10, these verses 1 to 5, it shows us the what of Jesus' response to these men. The remainder of this passage gives us the why. And I told you before, guys, the stings. There's this stigma around this topic. Um, Some of your walks of life I can relate to and I can um, sympathize, I can even empathize. But I also recognize there's some of you here, among us, the gathered saints, as well as our visitors today. There's some of you, I will never be able to relate to the degree that you have walked through this difficult situation of your life. But hang in there with me this morning. The why Jesus provides It seems to sing a little longer, but at the end, if you hang in there with me and listen to what God's speaking to the depths of your soul, you will be comforted, you will be encouraged, you will grow as a follower of Jesus. So here's the why that Jesus provides. Basically, the why God rejects all divorce is, um, as simply as stated, it's in opposition to his design. So where Jesus says, well, what what does Moses say about it? Well, Moses issued this certificate in response to the hardness of your hearts. Well, let's go back even further. And Jesus says, in in the beginning, at the beginning of creation, he says, I I know because I was there, we made male and female in our image. These verses 6 and 9 are are directly linked to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Go with me there. We have it referenced on the screens. Divorce of marriage is in direct opposition to God's design. Then God said, Genesis one twenty six, Let us make man in our image. Here we have the, the Trinitarian Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're, they're collaborating. They're discussing things. They're making decisions about their creation. And here they are coming to, to day six. They've made some incredible creative creatures. Spoken light into existence separated the vast expanses, made the birds of the air, the animals of the sea. But none up to this point in their image. None at this point. For as incredible as they are as part of his creation, none of them are qualified as the crown of his creation, possessing the imago day, the image of God, until this point in the Genesis account. And the Trinitarian God has been discussing, let us make man in our image. Let us make humanity distinct from the rest of creation. Yes, even distinct from apes and monkeys and things like that. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So Jesus says, well, let's go back to the beginning. God made humanity, the human race, the singular race. I may mention as well, we have different tribes. We've got different pigmentations, but one singular human race, fallen in need of an eternal savior, he made the human race in his image as the crown of creation unlike anything else. And the existence of man is purpose for the glory of God and the enjoyment of God. And he says we made them male and female. Uh, among humanity, we made two biological genders. I've been in Disney World all week. Whew. And the mask do not help in recognizing that department. Being made in the image of God as the crown of creation for his glory and our enjoyment includes being male or female, biologically made and designed in that capacity to uniquely and most appropriately express his glory and enjoy his presence and relation in our lives. But then going back to the beginning as well, also includes something else. Not only is humanity the crown of creation made in God's image, not only is humanity um, um, divided into one of two genders, male and female, but male and female made in the image of God are made for marriage. Genesis 2 23, and 24. This is the the scene where right before here, God is saying it's not good for man to be alone. Right? Adam's named all the animals and he's like, wait a minute. Where's my helpmate? Where's my companion? Where's the one who compliments me? My equal, but we have unique, differing roles to glorify you and enjoy you as I see all throughout the expanses of your creation. And God puts Adam to sleep. And Adam wakes up and he sees this creature unlike any other creature he has seen so far in his entire existence. The man said, this is at last Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. And he was like, whoa, man, up top, God. She's the best of all I have seen. You outdid yourself because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus references the beginning here because there's a union And intimacy taking place. And I'm not even talking about physical. Made in the image of God, male and female, purpose for marriage. Because marriage is that earthly relationship. There in marriage is this earthly relationship that expresses the fullness and the beauty of the Trinitarian Godhead like no other possible earthly relationship. Think about this. We've got got God the Father before time was ever spoken into motion. God the Father, and we have God the Son, and we have God the Spirit. God the Father has always and will always exist fully as God. God the Son has always existed and always will exist as God the Son. Colossians says the the fullness of deity is pleased to dwell within God the Son. But also we have over here God the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of Jesus, the third person of the Trinity, Who also, not it, but he, this person, has always existed and will always exist as fully God. Here in this Trinitarian Godhead, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one God. Jesus' reference here in Mark 10 takes us all the way back to the... Creation account, the beginning. And and mind you, marriage was designed and instituted by God um, where in the order of the fallen condition of man? Pre-fall. Even if sin never entered into existence of humanity, marriage was always God's plan and desire. And there in marriage, you have a man made in the Imago Dei following Jesus. You have one woman made in the Imago Dei following Jesus. And when they profess belief on Jesus and their commitments and vows of marriage to one another, holy matrimony, that's that fancy word, like they say it, we have no idea what it means. This is what it means. This holy matrimony that occurs is a supernatural, miraculous union provided by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Marriage ain't 50. 50. Can I get an amen? A a wiser man said marriage is actually 100, 100. Can I get an amen? That's wrong too. Sorry. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says a strand of three cannot be broken. The reason God the Son makes such a big deal about marriage and divorce and remarriage here, not to make you feel guilty. Not to come across as a good shepherd who is no longer tender or loving and kind towards you. But you see, when you enter into a marriage relationship, just as you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as three persons but one God, In holy matrimony, this supernatural, miraculous union takes place where one male made in the image of God following Jesus, one female made in the image of God following Jesus, and one Trinitarian Godhead. And there occurs this most miraculous, supernatural welding together, just like you have welding where you have different um, metals coming together. They're separate and they're distinct and individual, but when they're welded together, they become this one glorious, most beautiful display of a singular product. Marriage is just the same. One man, one woman, in this miraculous supernatural union with a Trinitarian Godhead in this perfect harmony. God says, you may think You get a bill of divorce. You and your spouse might come to an agreement that you're at irreconcilable differences. And you may get your certificate from Moses. You might get your lawyers and things like that to make it official in the eyes of humanity. But when the wife leaves and the husband leaves, y'all may have agreed upon that separation. But God, the third strand in that relationship, has never endorsed it. And that's why it seems like Jesus doubles down at the end of this narrative. The disciples, as always, it's, Jesus, you, you told everybody in public, but we got to get alone in the house because you got to give me some insight. Did you really mean that? you really mean to say that even if they're divorced for these appropriate reasons even, God's still not for it? And Jesus, he, it seems like he doubles down. Whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband, marries another, she commits adultery toward him. Not warm and fuzzy, I know. But it's the truth. It's what we want to cling to. I rarely use notes, but today in this topic, I'm not leaving anything to chance. I realize at this point, you thinking, wait a minute, you you suckered us in. You said if we hang in there, there's going to be some balm for the sting that I'm experiencing. There's going to be some tenderness. This does not seem like the tendered good shepherd. Where, where is this kindness you've been promising? Some of you might be visiting today thinking, you don't even know me. You're already... Categorizing me as an adulterer. This is me humbly behind the word of God, and let, let's continue to see where it takes us. So marriage is God's design. Severing that union is never desired by God. But in recognition of sin, as in the Old Testament, there were releases, uh, provisions of his mercy, and the same is true in the New Testament. Matthew 19:1, 1, 1 Corinthians 7. Provide these releases, It's not condoned. It's not God's desire. But there are situations where God says, okay, it's not my design. I will never, based on my holiness, endorse this separation. But in my recognition of the realities of sin and fallen nature of this world, there are situations in which you can be released from your marriage covenant. Matthew 19 talks about it. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about it. If if a believer is married with an unbeliever and there comes a time where the unbelieving spouse says, I'm leaving you because of your faith. There is nothing you can do in that situation and they're leaving. That is a release the grace of God affords us, a provision of his mercy. And then the gospel accounts, what we see ultimately is that Recognizing the sinful nature of this world, if you're in a marriage covenant with someone and, and they break that trust they vowed to you, or if there's any level of abuse, not just physical, hear me, verbal, mental, spiritual, any breaking of trust are levels of abuse that go on with no repentance no sincerity of humility, seeking restoration, the grace of God affords a release. Not because God's design or desire is for divorce, but because the provisions of his mercy recognize the sinfulness of this world. It doesn't minimize what's taking place. The best example I have here is what I heard a pastor say, he put it this way. He said, if, if I tell my kids, if you get drunk, don't drive the car. Okay, you with me? If I tell my kids, if you get drunk, don't drive the car. Am I condoning him getting drunk? No. All right, the Bible is very clear. Drunkenness is a sin having any other elements other than the Holy Spirit intoxicating you and your motivations. Drinking is not a sin, but getting drunk is. In no way am I saying, children, go off and be drunk. But, as, uh, but when you do get drunk and you enjoy that intoxication, just be sure you don't drive. No. I'm providing a provision of mercy, recognizing my children are just as sinful as I am. And if in this sinful fallen world they find themselves in a situation in which they do become drunk and intoxicated, hopefully this provision of mercy will minimize the damage of this sinful decision and make way a path for redemption as quickly as possible. That's the way Moses' certificate of divorce was provided. Not because it's in line with God's original design, but in a fallen world, it affords an avenue toward minimizing the damages because of sinful decisions and providing restorative, redemptive paths forward. Jesus is emphatic. Never separate. If you're in a union of marriage, never sever it. That is his design. But in this attempted entrapment, marriage, divorce, remarriage, it's just a tree An overall force of following Jesus, okay? Here's we're going to lighten the load a little bit. Zoom out with me as we try to land this thing. As followers of Jesus, There's no surrender or sacrifice that can be considered too great or too radical. The immediate passage closing out chapter 9 is all about if something keeps you from serving or or helping someone's eternal state, cut it off. Sever it. Sacrifice yourself. Every one of us as followers of Jesus, we've come through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in this miraculous supernatural union with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there should be no area in our lives, marriage, addictions, relationships, careers, speech, attitudes, there should be no area in our lives as individual believers where the ruling lordship of Jesus does not reign. There should be no area in our lives, be it in our marriages or our individual following of Jesus in which his Ruling kingship is divorced from us. Isaiah 61 talks about this, and this is where we're going to end this morning. Isaiah 61 talks about the devastation that comes with a sinful world, but also the hope that comes from the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to The poor sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are brown, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Regardless of how sinful and sticky and fallen this world is, When there is sincerity and humility in the provisions of God's mercy, there are always paths of restoration and redemption. We sang about it just earlier today. Different seasons of our lives. We think of the love of the Lord like the low winter sun, and as I gaze, I am blinded in the light of your brightness. Like fire to the snow, I'm renewed in your warmth. Melt the ice of this wild soul until the barren in my life is beautiful.